May 2022. In the littered field of discredited self-congratulatory chauvinisms, there is only one that seems to hold up, one sense in which we are special, due to our own actions or inactions, and the misuse of our technology, we live at an extraordinary moment, for the earth at least, the first time that a species has become able to wipe itself out. But this is also, we may note, the first time that a species has become able to journey to the planets and the stars. The two times, brought about by the same technology, coincide, a few centuries in the history of a 4.5 billion year old planet. If you were somehow dropped down on the Earth randomly at any moment in the past or future, the chance of arriving at this critical moment would be less than 1 in 10 million. Our leverage on the future is high just now. Carl Sagan. Future Matters is a newsletter about long termism brought to you by Matthew van der Merwe and Pablo Staffarini. Each month we collect and summarize long-termism-relevant research, share news from the long-termism community, and feature a conversation with a prominent long-termist. You are currently listening to the Future Matters podcast, which converts the Future Matters newsletter into audio using text-to-speech software. For more information, including links to the print version, please visit futurematters.news. Research Stefan Schubert's Against Cluelessness notes that, while it is generally very hard to predictably affect the long-term future, this fails to constitute a decisive objection to long-termism. Amidst this sea of cluelessness, we find pockets of predictability, or opportunities for making long-lasting changes that are positive in expectation. Schubert describes two types of intervention that escape these worries. First, attempts to reduce short-term risks to our long-term potential, such risks are tractable because they are located in the near-term, but still have long-termist significance. Threats of this type include risks of human extinction as well as risks of value lock-in. Second, efforts to build long-termist capacity, such as increasing the size of the long-termism community or its financial resources, or improving the reputation or knowledge of that community. This capacity can be built over a period of decades or centuries, until good enough opportunities to robustly improve the long-term future emerge. Joseph Carl Smith's presentation on existential risk from power-seeking AI, video and transcript, summarizes the author's comprehensive report published in April last year. Carl Smith focuses specifically on AI systems defined by the possession of three key properties, advanced capability, agentic planning, and Strategic Awareness, APS, for short, and then relies on this construct to develop an explicit argument for the conclusion that AI poses an existential risk to humanity. 1. It will become possible to develop APS systems. 2. There will be strong incentives to deploy APS systems. 3. It will be much harder to build aligned than misaligned APS systems. 4. Misaligned APS systems, if deployed, will fail in high-impact ways. 5. A failure from a misaligned APS system will permanently disempower humanity. 6. A disempowerment of humanity will constitute an existential catastrophe. Summarizing all the considerations Carl Smith adduces for each of the premises in the argument is beyond the scope of this newsletter but we encourage the reader to check out the author's commendably lucid talk for the relevant details. Liska Vaintrobs against long-termist as an identity describes two possible harms of self-identifying as a long-termist. 
The first is that the label includes factual claims, for example, that trying to improve the long term is generally more cost-effective than improving the world in other ways, which makes it harder to update in response to evidence against these claims. The second is that the label causes people to uncritically accept wholesale the cluster of views associated with long-termism, instead of evaluating each view on its merits. We think that these are valid worries, though it's unclear to us how specific to long-termist they are, the second seems to also apply to effective altruist, and the first applies to other labels which do not seem obviously objectionable, for example pacifist. We will soon create our eyes with moral status, whose interests should be protected and factored into our decision-making. Welcoming digital minds into society will require substantial revisions to our moral and political thinking. Nick Bostrom and Carl Schulman's propositions concerning digital minds and society lays the groundwork for this important project, setting out over 100 tentative theses. The pace of recent technological developments makes this all the more urgent, and we hope to see much more work on this topic. William McCaskill's EA and the current funding situation identifies two types of risks associated with the current influx of funding. Risks of commission have attracted much discussion on the EA forum and elsewhere, and include appearances of extravagance, erosion of critical ability, and fostering of resentment, among other concerns. By contrast, risks of omission have received virtually no attention despite being, in McCaskill's opinion, at least as concerning. For one thing, it is very hard to substantially scale up giving and still give effectively. For another, the costs of failure from insufficient caution are much more visible than the costs of failure from excessive caution. McAskill proposes we respond to this tension with an attitude of judicious ambition, a willingness to take bold action, while remaining cognizant of the risks involved. Nick Beckstead some clarifications on the Future Fund's approach to grantmaking addresses a number of questions and concerns related to the Future Fund's grantmaking so far. Beckstead notes that, 1. The Future Fund's process for approving grants involves significantly more scrutiny than is generally assumed, going through several review rounds by different staff members and technical experts, that, 2. While the actual team is very small, it relies extensively on a very large number of regranters and external advisors, that, 3. Contrary to common perception, the Future Fund hasn't funded many community-building projects, and that, 4. The fund pays considerable attention to downside risks and community effects of their grantmaking. Beckstead concludes that some of the confusion resulted because the fund has undercommunicated and announces a plan to publish a review of their work next month. Lucius Caviola, Erin Morrissey and Joshua Lewis's most students who would agree with EA ideas haven't heard of EA yet reports the results of a large-scale survey of students at New York University. The primary finding is that, out of 8.8% of students who were highly sympathetic to effective altruism, only 1.3% of students, less than 15%, were actually familiar with the movement. As the authors acknowledge, it's unclear, because of the attitude-behavior gap, how much high sympathy predicts high engagement. And it is also unclear what the implications for outreach are, the existence of such a large reservoir of positively inclined students still unaware of EA may perhaps suggest that, in Owen Cotton Barrett's awareness inclination model, publicity should be prioritized over advocacy. There is a small literature in economic history that tries to understand the role of historic events on modern outcomes. This is of clear relevance to long-termists interested in shaping the long-run trajectory of humanity going forward. Pablo Villalobos and Jamie Sevilla's Potatoes, a critical review scrutinizes one eye-catching result, 
Nan and Chen's claim that the introduction of potatoes was a major determinant of population growth and urbanization in the old world. They replicate the analysis and run a number of statistical tests, tentatively concluding that the paper's claim is well supported. In How We Fix the Ozone Layer, Hannah Ritchie looks at a recent example of humanity solving a global coordination problem. After scientists established a link between human emissions and ozone depletion in 1974, political action was relatively swift. An international agreement to phase out ozone-depleting substances was signed in 1987, global use of these chemicals fell precipitously, and the ozone began to recover. Unfortunately, this success story doesn't offer much comfort when it comes to other risks. Compared with, for example, climate change, it was a much easier coordination problem to solve, the problem was due to one specific industry, versus the whole economy, and the near-term harms from ozone depletion would have been disproportionately felt by richer nations, versus poorer ones. The arrival of advanced nanotechnology would have transformative impacts on the world, and could even pose an existential risk. Ben Snodin's thoughts on nanotechnology strategy research offers an excellent overview of work in this area, which has received limited attention from long-termists in recent years. Snodin estimates a 4-5% chance that advanced nanotech arrives before 2040. To read our conversation with Ben Snodin about the report, please go to the version of this issue cross-posted on the Effective Altruism Forum. Owen Cotton Barrett makes a case against immortality, presenting a few reasons why a world without death might not be good, contra the fairly widely held pro-immortality views among transhumanists and other long-termist adjacent communities. A comment from Lynch Jong prompts an interesting discussion about the immortal dictators argument. James Smith and Jonas Sandbrink look at biosecurity in the age of open science, also covered in Wired. Publishing work on preprint servers has taken off in biology, particularly since March 2020. This enables researchers to quickly disseminate findings without lengthy peer review. Unfortunately, researchers sometimes publish well-intentioned research that could nonetheless prove dangerous, for example, how to synthesize viruses, in the hands of malicious actors, like terrorists. The authors make some sensible recommendations for mitigating these risks, while retaining the important benefits of open science. Owen Cotton Barrett suggests long-termists should spend more time answering the question, what do we want the world to look like in 10 years? While we often have a sense of the long-run outcomes we're aiming for, for instance, safe AGI, and some plans for getting there, for example, more alignment research, there's not much discussion about what success looks like on intermediate timescales. An 80,000 hours problem profile by Benjamin Hilton considers whether climate change is the greatest threat facing humanity today. Climate change will have some extremely bad effects, including making us more vulnerable to other threats, but it is very unlikely, approximately 1 in 10,000, to destroy humanity. Overall, we should be doing much more about it. But individuals trying to maximize their impact, without a strong comparative advantage in climate change, should probably work on problems that are more important and neglected, such as 80,000 hours highest priority areas. Douglas Ligeia and Luke Matthews's Outer Space and the Veil of Ignorance proposes a framework for thinking about space regulation. The authors credit John Rawls with an idea actually first developed by the utilitarian philosopher John Hossoni, that to decide what rules should govern society, we must ask what each member would prefer if they ignored in advance their own position in it. 
the authors then note that, when it comes to space governance, humanity is currently behind a de facto veil of ignorance. As they write, quote, we still do not know who will shoulder the burden to clean up our space debris, or which nation or company will be the first to capitalize on mining extraterrestrial resources, end quote. Since the passage of time will gradually lift this veil, and reveal which nations benefit from which rules, the authors argue that this is a unique time for the international community to agree on binding rules for space governance. News EA Global, San Francisco 2022 is July 30th. Applications are open until July 14th. DeepMind is hiring for a number of roles on their alignment and scalable alignment teams. EA Forum post with details on the team's work and how to apply. Open Philanthropy is seeking proposals to quantify biological risks. Applications are due by June 5th. Read more and apply here. The Future of Life Institute announced the 20 finalists in their world-building contest, which sought creative writing on positive visions for a post-AGI world. The Legal Priorities Project announced a summer fellowship for students and recent graduates. Apply before June 17th. The ML Safety Scholars Program is a nine-week summer course for undergraduates to gain skills relevant to AI safety work. Applications are due May 31st. Richard Yetta Chapel, who has for nearly two decades run a highly original, engaging, and wide-ranging philosophy blog, recently moved to Substack. Rob Wiblin interviewed Will McCaskill for the 80,000 Hours podcast. Topics discussed include Will's forthcoming book, Long-Termism as a Label, Mental Health, and Judicious Ambition, see above. Luca Rigetti and Finn Morehouse interviewed Jason Crawford on Progress Studies for Hear This Idea. The interview includes a section on the links between progress studies and long-termism. Finn Morehouse also published an abbreviated version of his profile on space governance, which we summarized in our March 2022 issue. Rumtin Sepaspor released a database of academic articles, reports and government submissions from 2016 to 2021 relating to existential and global catastrophic risk, categorized by policy relevance and risk category. Will Bradshaw, Anjali Gopal and Michael McLaren announced the launch of the Nucleic Acid Observatory, an organization focused on protecting the world from catastrophic biothreats by detecting novel agents spreading in the human population or environment. The Global Priorities Institute announced the 2022 prizes in Global Priorities Research. The top prize was awarded to Jeffrey Sanford Russell's paper, on two arguments for fanaticism. Conversation with Ben Snodden Ben Snodden is a senior researcher at Rethink Priorities. His current focuses are building a nanotechnology strategy research field within EA, and on ways to support mid-career people interested in moving into EA work. He was previously a senior research scholar at the Future of Humanity Institute, FHI, and worked in finance as a quantitative analyst. He has a PhD in DNA nanotechnology from the University of Oxford. Future Matters, you've spent some time working on nanotechnology strategy, and recently published a report on whether it's a promising area of focus for long-termists. Could you tell us a bit about what nanotechnology strategy entails? Ben Snodden, I guess the tagline is, working on making the development of advanced nanotechnology go well for the world. It's kind of like AI safety, but for nanotechnology. 
except maybe with a bit less emphasis on risk, since there are many good possible outcomes from advanced nanotechnology as well that could be worth thinking about, so it doesn't have to be totally focused on risk. And how did you start working in this area? I joined the Research Scholars Program at FHI two years ago, and my tentative initial plan was to do global priorities research. Then I had a careers think and this nanotech strategy thing was there as an extra option, because other people at FHI had been talking about it. And I realized I probably had a good comparative advantage there, partly because of my background and partly through being at FHI where lots of people were talking about it, especially at that time. And it's pretty unexplored by EA people. I guess the first things I did were talking to the other people on the research scholars program who'd been thinking about it a bit, and talking to Eric Drexler at FHI who kind of came up with the idea that we could one day have this kind of technology, and was the first one to say we should think about this. Could you outline what exactly people are talking about when they talk about nanotechnology and atomically precise manufacturing? It's still kind of vague, but the basic idea is that you have nanoscale machines doing Lego with atoms and small molecules, joining together small molecules to make some structure. We kind of have examples of this from biology where nanoscale machines called ribosomes make proteins by joining amino acids together. In what I call the advanced nanotechnology version, these machines need to be very stiff and high performance in some sense, in a way that biological things are not. And then atomically precise manufacturing is a bit narrower than the thing that I call advanced nanotechnology. It's more prescriptive, the machinery and products need to be mostly atomically precise, for example, there's this particular idea about doing hierarchical assembly as well, where the products of the smallest machines are used as building blocks for slightly bigger machines, and so on. In Nick Bostrom's 2002 paper introducing the concept of existential risk, nanotechnology gets more discussion than AI or biotechnology. In contemporary discussions, it doesn't get nearly as much attention, for example, the precipice has just one page on nanotech. What do you think explains this shift in focus? Interesting that you mention the precipice. I circulated something on nanotech stuff in FHI about a year ago, and Toby Ord was like it's cool that you're looking into this, I didn't have much on it in the precipice because people hadn't looked into it that much. So why is that? I guess that in 2002 it was in the public consciousness a bit more, and there was lots of funding going into it and progress being announced. Obviously, I wasn't there at the time. But the amount of progress, since then, has been very slow. Progress has been very slow and AI progress has been very fast, or seems to have been relatively surprisingly fast. So this is one story, and I feel like this has got to be a big part of the story. I don't know if it's the whole story, or if there's also historical accidents, where a few key early people got more interested in AI. At the same time, I don't think we should have as many people working on this stuff as AI. But it shouldn't be zero. In the popular imagination, Worries about nanotech have centered around so-called grey goose scenarios, in which self-replicating nanobots consume the biosphere and cause some sort of ecological catastrophe. Reading your report and more contemporary stuff, this doesn't seem to be a particular focus, can you elaborate a bit on why that is? So I think Eric Drexler wrote about grey goo in Engines of Creation, which was his big thing saying, this technology could happen and let's worry about it. I guess Eric's definitely moved away from that. I feel like, to get grey goo to happen, you need really, really advanced technology, it seems like one of the last things you'd be able to do if you had this technology. 
Like, you'd start off with a not great version which would still be really impactful, and then the grey goo just seems really, really hard. It seems way harder to make an autonomous, fully self-sufficient, able to replicate, nanoscale thing than to make a better computer than we can now, for example. And then also it seems hard to do it by accident, and it's like, why would you want to make that? I mean, I think I mentioned it in the report because I think it's possible, maybe someone would want to make that sometime because there are crazy people. You know, we decided making nuclear weapons was a good idea. But yeah, it doesn't seem that likely that people would make it. So to me it's not the main thing I'd be worrying about. We don't know much about what exactly this advanced nanotechnology will look like. When we're trying to think about the arrival of APM, is it fair to just think of it as a dramatic improvement in our general manufacturing capabilities? Yeah, I think the framing of very powerful, very general manufacturing technology is probably the main one I rely on to think about the effects. You can add a bit more nuance because the core technology is nanoscale machines joining small molecules. For example, probably the first products are nanoscale things or things where you don't need much material. But yeah, I think you can mostly think of this as a manufacturing technology, which is not at all obvious from the name. We definitely didn't find that obvious either. So then, when thinking about the effects of advanced nanotechnology, how different is this from just thinking about the effects of dramatic technical progress? I think I would add a bit more nuance, but this isn't a terrible first approximation. It's quite a similar question. Maybe it's a similar process to try and answer that. Nuance you can add is obviously like, maybe we have particular reasons to think we get this particular thing a lot sooner than if you were just, for example, forecasting economic growth and projecting how manufacturing should evolve. And then there are particular enabling technologies we'd have in mind for progress on advanced nanotechnology, and for advanced nanotechnology we probably expect to get certain products or capabilities earlier than others. There are things like that where having the particular technology in mind changes the story a bit. Advanced nanotechnology would provide enormous benefits, and you point to ways in which it could plausibly reduce existential risk, alongside ways it could pose a risk itself. How should we think in a nuanced way about the balance of good and bad effects? It's pretty hard. If I had to guess, I'd prefer it not to happen sooner. So I think we want to avoid speeding it up, because it's easier to speed up than slow down, and because we have the option to wait. As for whether it would it have good or bad effects on balance, if it arrived in 2025, I'd guess overall it would be bad but it's very unclear. I guess people would say like, maybe AI is sort of do or die, and if we survive AI then we're good. So why add this extra risk by having this crazy thing happen before AI, better to have it after AI and then the AI can ensure it goes well or something. Thanks Ben. For general assistance, we thank Leonardo Pecon. We're offering a cash bounty of between $5 and $50 if you inform us of a substantial error in future matters. Depending on how significant we judge it to be, 